Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Some of us think of one thing we want to do or something we're good at. Select a place and then go do that thing. Well, you all know my story and that didn't quite work the same for me. And it didn't quite work the same for today's guest, Joshu. Born in China, but wanting to learn wine at a top institution, he went to California to work a harvest and gain some winemaking skills. Then he worked vineyards in Australia and then went back to China to make wine and work in imports exports. Joshu's story is fascinating in how he navigates the differences in the world of wine on multiple continents, from worth ethic to translations, yet he handles them flawlessly. Currently in China, but awaiting his next adventure on another continent, here's Joshu. Hi guys, uh, this is Zhou Xu and um, I'm currently a winemaker in China and uh, I started my wine industry all the way back in 2013, went to college in California, studied winemaking and then after that started my kind of trying to further complete my wine knowledge. So I started working with wine importers in China, exporters in Australia and then right now I'm doing my master of wine business in the University of Adelaide. So right now I'm kind of having multiple identities in the wine industry. It sounds like it. So we have wine maker, wine exporter, wine importer, master of wine business degree. How does all of that come together for you? Or are you just trying to see what part of the wine industry interests you the most? Well, it's kind of um, not entirely my choice because as an international person, when I was in the States, I have to keep employed the whole time after graduation, but winemaking is a seasonal job. So after the harvest peak, I have to try and find other jobs to um, stay the status. So I started doing DTC, hospitality, and also a little bit exporting in California. And then I kind of realized the knowledge and activities from um, UC Davis, the winemaking part doesn't necessarily cover the whole picture of wine industry. I still lack a lot of knowledge. And then I started researching and see if I could go anywhere else to um, get more uh, comprehensive knowledge of wine. And then I found Australia. It's a very nice wine exporting country. They export roughly two thirds of their products. Very experienced, a lot of support from the authority of wine Australia. So that's why I chose to go to Australia. 
So in deciding on different positions and also different continents, your decision came about based on who had something that you needed available at the time. What would you say was the biggest adjustment when you moved? Since you've been on three different continents, you've been in China doing work and you were in Adelaide and then you were in California, what was like a, the biggest adjustment outside of just the job? There are a lot of uh, like environmental differences, say the um, like unit conversion. When you're in the States, it's kind of you're using pounds, you're using gallons. Uh, yeah. 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 And then you go to China or you're in Australia, it's metric again. Yeah, it's a little bit going back and forth and that uh, takes some time to adjust to. And, and then, that's something that's important for you because of the industry and the things that you were working with, like you needed the measurements for that or just in your daily life? Um, both daily life and uh, professional life. And also industry standard and um, work habits, regulations are all different. Uh, that needs research ahead. And then when you go there, you kind of do it by learning. Speaking of learning, which one of your jobs or positions or roles in the wine industry, what do you feel had the largest learning curve for you? Definitely as exporter importers. Really? So actually, in different parts of the wine industry, people speak different languages. Mm-hmm. When you are in as a more scientific part of the production side, and when you are as importer in the retail position, you're trying to use a language that consumers can understand. And and then as a kind of distributor, you have to talk to multiple lines in that supply chain. So it's all different languages. You have to really find exactly what's the most important thing people want to hear from you. You know, like in the Northern Rome, when people ferment uh, Syrah, some people tend to blending a little bit Viognier. And um, there are like uh, kind of two major reasons for that. Um, If you're a winemaker, you would know that it's for the color stability. You need that enzyme from that white grape in that red grape to keep that purple color stay there. But if you are a retailer, you're trying to do a little bit marketing effort to consumers, you would say that's for the aromatic intensity. Uh, The Viognier is gonna try to help boost up the Syrah flavor. So it's, the same activity, but two different explanations. And you really have to kind of choose which one you use. Wait, so the VNA added is really added for the stability of color or do some people add it for the flavor? You are kind of blowing my mind right now. I would say I, I couldn't speak for like everybody, but well, in yeah. most cases <laughs> it's for the color because you would see like in the spec sheet, they only blend in usually 3%, 5% at most. The regulation permits like over 10%, but I've never seen anybody exceeds 8%. And for that small portion, it's really not going to do much on the flavor aroma profile of the whole wine. And for the, at the scientific part, we use that mostly for color. Okay, you've just blown my mind. Cause I do feel like sometimes it does change the flavor. Like I like Syrah with the little Viognier blended in. I feel like mm-hmm. in Australia, they'll do more Viognier in the Syrah blend than say Northern Rhone. But there is a, a, a bit of a difference in, I mean, a hundred percent versus, you know, uh, 98 or 97% Syrah. Yeah. 
It is a case by case situation. It's definitely going to make a difference if you only use like maybe one percent of the Viognier skin versus five percent of Viognier grape plus juice. It's all going to change the whole picture. It's interesting how you say the wording changes depending on who you talk to. Like you said, someone may need to hear that, okay, this is the color stability or this is how you get it this certain way. Then someone else to sell it to them may need to hear the part about the aromatic and uh, flavor profile. Do you find that that is something that people uh, have trouble learning across the board when it comes to wine? They don't use the words and the language that they need to for the person that they're speaking with? Yeah, I've seen it a lot. So when I uh, work for a um, exporter in Australia and we would do this little interviews with uh, winemakers and we're trying to get them to say what we want to kind of convert to the information we need for say the Chinese customer. And very often they're going a little bit too technical and then it's just not an effective marketing effort. Yeah, I'm just thinking of all the times where I've been like, no, that's probably not how you should be saying it. While the information is still true and correct, I think you really do have to tailor what you say um, to who you're speaking to. And I think a big thing is even just how you talk to someone else in wine, like the conversation that you and I could have about wine, would be different than a conversation to a consumer. If I was doing a consumer class and teaching wine, that conversation or those words and that language would be different. And I think it should be different based on that person's experience with wine, their expertise or lack of expertise in wine. I think you have to tailor yourself, your talk, your words to your audience. And I don't know if enough people in wine do that. Yep, that I agree. Now, I want to go back a little bit to your wine making, and that was when you were in California. Yep, both California and California. China. Oh, you did wine making in China as well? Yep. So I have now I have 17 more questions. So <laughs> <laughs> what is the biggest misconception in general about making wine? In most cases, uh, for my background, my family or uh, friends, they don't really have any part uh, to do with the, the winemaking world. Uh, so when I talk to them and say, okay, I'm, um, I do winemaking, and uh, they always picture me as kind of a suit up, picking samples from the barrel, swore that, having a nice taste, and uh, maybe do some blending. And they kind of think that's everything I have to do with winemaking. And everybody seemed to ignore the kind of hot, messy, fast part of winemaking, which is the heavy lifting, labor-intensive part. And tell me more about the labor-intensive part, just so our uh, listeners can know a little bit more about that part. Yeah, sure. Um, it doesn't matter if you're um, just a seller hand or you're a winemaker. There are a lot of, saying pulling hoses, kind of scrub tanks, um, lifting cases, driving forklifts, and especially when the, uh, the grape comes in, it's the juice is everywhere, it gets on you and it gets on the equipment. So you have a lot of sanitation to have to do. 
and hours gets long. Sometimes it's kind of 5 a.m. to maybe 11 p.m. Yeah, it's um, it's a very hot, messy, tiring work. That's why the winemakers need a, such a long vacation after um, harvest. They usually have nothing to do but have fun in January and February. It makes sense because um, what I know of it is definitely hard work. A lot of people think like, oh, well, you just go in, you stomp a few grapes and, you know, you move some things around and you taste it. People look at wine and the wine industry as such a fancy thing. And I'm like, no, what making like farming. So farming isn't glamorous. Farming could be, I would say it's a little bit better than um, in the cellar, at least a little bit cleaner. Yeah. Mm hmm. But still not not glamorous work. No, it gets sunburned a lot. Yeah, that's not the glamorous fancy work. Now, between making wine in China and making wine in California, can you tell me about a couple of differences between the continents, the regions, and uh, that kind of thing? The biggest difference I saw was the way people work, because in California and in Australia, it's most people are paid by hour, but in China, almost all jobs are monthly pay and uh, you just adjust your preset wage based on your performance. So people are a little bit more laid back in the winery in China instead of in California. The winemakers have to worry about how many hours this guy has worked, uh, how many I'm gonna pay for overtime, and are we gonna finish this within like 70 hours this week? Whereas in China, you just wake up 8.30, you go to work and you finish around maybe 10, the latest, you go back. So a lot less stress and also a lot, a lot less paid. It's always interesting to hear people talk about uh, work in America and the work ethic in America versus in other countries, because I've had that conversation a lot, of course, with people here in France and thinking about how different it is here, the way they work, the way their wages are paid their ideas about work versus the American idea about work. Which one is better, which one is worse, if there is a better one or a worse one, which I don't necessarily think it's better or worse. I think a blend of the two, there are good aspects of both. And it would be nice. It really depends on what kind of work-life balance you want. Yes. Well, I think everywhere else you can have a better work-life balance. That's something that I don't think Americans do well is work-life balance. Maybe now yeah. it's different, but yeah, I, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think, right. You're like, I don't want to say it's okay. <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend and she worked in uh, a French winery once and she always complaining about working 20 hours um, every day. And I was saying, okay, it's 20 hours on paper, but your lunch are three hours long. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate how they enjoy living their life. And work is not their main focus. It is a means to an end, but living their best life is the focus. And I appreciate that about their way of life and their way of living. The part about uh, the wine industry difference in China and um, pretty much elsewhere of the world is um, female involvement. I do see a very 
high level of female involvement in wine industry in China. Not only the marketing part. So some people would say in China, wine is more of a feminine drink um, and you use a lot of pretty ladies for marketing, but also on the production side, you see many, many um, female figures. They're trying their best to do uh, winemaking as well. Is that something that has happened within the past uh, few years? Uh, I would say to be the case. In the past couple of decades, because in the old values, um, so in China, the wine regions are mostly in the rural area. And um, a lot of those males would go to a, a major city for work. And that's a better paid position. And that makes that person able to kind of supply the whole family. And in the rural area, we would have more female potential labor, I would say. Um, and then they would find, okay, winery is pretty cool. I have time. I would just go there and see what I can do. And also um, a lot of women would go to universities for uh, winemaking, a little bit of lab work, and that all contributed to the industry as well. Have you been dreaming of sitting in a wine bar in Paris again? Well, why not purchase the ebook 75 in the 75? 75 wine bars to visit in Paris. All of my wine bar recommendations and pictures in one place. Tons of photos of the City of Light. Classic or natural wines, big euros or centimes. We've got all tastes covered in this wine guide. For purchase, visit my website, www.girlmeetsglass.com and select 75 in the 75 wine guide. Speaking about China as a, a wine industry or winemaking industry, we've always known them to be large consumers of wine uh, from other places. But how old is the wine making industry in China? If you refer to historical book, it would say by the end of like the, the Qing dynasty, we already have a winemaking business. Uh, that's Changyu, one of the gallo in China, I would say. But in reality, I would say the late 80s to early 90s was the first boom of winemaking. By then, people are more interested into um, semi-sweet white wine. And then the second boom would be around 2010 till now. What are the styles of winemaking in China? Is it kind of everything, traditional grapes, uh, traditional French grapes, I should say, or what are the blends, the styles, the grapes coming out of China? We have pretty much everything but uh, fortified over here. So we have a lot of Bordeaux, reds and white, Burgundy, the popular international ones, um, that's all been planted and uh, fermented over here. And then we have a little bit hybrid from local Chinese grapes and the European varietals. And then people are experimenting, for example, I think a couple of wineries in Northwest China, they're doing a little bit Georgian varieties. So it's um, a lot's going on. It sounds like it. And how is export from China for now? Where are the wines going? Who is consuming Chinese wines? Uh, mostly domestic. Yeah, because uh, price-wise, it's way more affordable than uh, imported wines in China. Um, and also some 
premium, super premium examples would export to say Singapore, Japan, and uh, a little bit of the international uh, wine groups over here, say LVMH and uh, Pinot Ricard, um, mm -hmm. Dome, they would do the, these mass production and export to maybe um, South Asia. What were some difficulties or some things that were easy for you or unexpected that you found in importing, exporting in China? What were some challenges there? Totally, it's a, it's a massive cultural difference dilemma, exporting wise. For example, the, the place I worked last year, um, they exported Japan. And this translation of the label is from Chinese to English, then to Japanese by the local distributors over there. It's, I would say a lot of descriptions lost their meanings during this multiple translation. And I don't see if there's any effective way to kind of reduce that loss. Any funny mishaps that you uh, remember or anything you read on a label, you were like, oh no, this is absolutely not what we meant to say. And you got kind of a good chunk. There's no disasters. It's just uh, that, for example, the, the name of that wine would appear differently on, say, Vivino or um, Seller Tracker. Because if you look it up in English, that would be one translation that's different to the winery's own English translation. And it's different to the local Japanese version, the katakana version. So it's like three different names that have, uh, from the same wine. It's very difficult for consumers to really find that wine. It makes sense. Whenever you start translating stuff, there are always things that get lost in translation. Always. So what's next for you? What do you want to do next? Where do you see yourself in the wine industry? What position? What class? What? What's next? Original plan was um, at least for the next three years, I would do uh, a one vintage at the Northern Hemisphere, either California or China. Then I would go down south, Australia, New Zealand for another vintage. So it's two vintages in one year. And then in between, I have my uh, own sole trader kind of importing business going on in China. I would just travel around, find the wine, uh, the interesting wines. I would like to bring to China and uh, to a little bit small scale distribution in the city I'm living in. That was the plan pre-COVID. Right oh, now, having COVID was a game changer. Yeah, travel restrictions. Um, I had a winemaking program settled in Australia very soon in two months, but right now I'm kind of stuck out of Australia. So maybe I have to find something else. In finding something else, having to uh, be able to, you know, pivot and change things how are you able to kind of keep your motivation keep your commitments up to yourself as far as your studies and things that you want to do in the wine industry well it, it is a very unique industry it's never just about wine it's culture it's history and i would say i've been trying to keep absorbing new info, keep curious. And uh, that's how I adjust to this dynamic industry and world. You would always have some unexpected changes like um, climate change, regulation change, and you just gotta try to prepare for that. And you seem to have been doing that very well. You seem to be in good spirits. You know what you wanna do next, where you wanna go, and that is fantastic. I keep, uh, keep my class full. If one is not enough, uh, make it two. 
This podcast was produced by Studio Ochenta, hosted by me, Tanisha Townsend. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Our sound editor is Luis Raul Lopez Levi. Our theme was done by Gabriel Dalmaso. Music is by Makai Beats. Our art is by Tiffany DeLune. Follow us at Wine School Dropout on Instagram and check out ochintastudio.com for full transcripts of this and every episode of the show. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.